ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It was the story of the Mary Celeste that first got Maddie McAllister hooked on ships. The tale goes that back in 1872, the Mary Celeste set sail from New York Harbour to Genoa in Italy, but it never arrived. The ship was found about a month later. The table was set for dinner, but not a single person out of its 10 passengers could be found. The mystery of what happens remains. Was it pirates, a sea monster, something supernatural? Maddie has become an expert in investigating the mysteries that lie beneath the sea. She's a marine archaeologist and dives down into shipwrecks to uncover the artefacts and the stories of the sunken vessels and the people they've carried. Hi, Maddie. Hey. <laughs> Who first told you this story of the Mary Celeste? Yeah, that um, I have um, my granddad to blame for that story, for sure. He was a um, English farmer that moved out to Australia and retired and ended up being a scaly fisherman in the <laughs> southwest of WA. Um, and so I grew up with many stories. I think probably that is the only true one from him, <laughs> actually. The rest I now know are pretty um, were fake just to get me scared or interested. Did he take you out on boats as well? Yeah, he did. So um, uh, he had a little red dinghy that he would row me out on when I was quite little and he had a larger fishing boat called Biddy. So spent lots of time on the ocean with my granddad. How did you first discover there was a job that you could do <laughs> investigating shipwrecks? I guess I was kind of torn between two things. I wanted to be a marine biologist, but I was equally fascinated by Egypt and the pyramids and this sort of fascinating, really old history. And yeah, one day I stumbled across a lecture actually when I was in my mid-high school, I guess, a guest lecture at Ross Anderson from the WA Museum about shipwrecks and maritime archaeology. Where, where did you stumble? Like, how does oh. someone at high school stumble across? <laughs> oh, I know. That's, it's actually really funny. So it was my um, my stepdad came home from work one day and he'd been listening to um, ABC radio at home and I heard on the radio that there was an RSL lecture um, by Ross and so I dragged my mum along to it and I think we were the youngest people by like 40 years in the audience. Um, and, yeah. and what do you remember? What did you hear that kind of grabbed yeah. you? He gave this wonderful lecture on all manner of shipwrecks in Western Australia, but particularly the ones in the southwest that were near my home or, uh, you know, around the corners and the coves that I swam in and had no idea that they were just, you know, a couple of hundred metres offshore. So that really sort of surprised me that you could spend your life swimming at a beach and not know a shipwreck sitting just off the shore. Did you talk to Ross after that first lecture? <laughs> yeah, I did. I um, I went up to him and asked like how I could get involved and what I could do. And I remember him telling me I could go down the beach and walk surveys and, and have a look for objects myself, but also that I could do a weekend course, um, an introduction to maritime archaeology. So at 15, I was a freshly certified scuba diver and my Christmas present from my dad was to <laughs> do this course over a weekend at Fremantle at the Shipwreck Museum, learning all about maritime archaeology. 
Well, it obviously paid off, that <laughs> Christmas present. <laughs> yes. How much of your, your working life is spent underwater now? Yeah, I think that's a really common misconception. Um, ideally, I'd like it to be, you know, at least 50% of what I do is getting to be out on the water and underneath. But a lot of it actually is sitting in a desk and researching, looking at archives, looking at objects, um, maybe for every 10 days in the office, you get to do one on the water. Well, take me out on one of those days that you get to be on the water. What's that moment like where you drop off the boat and under the waves? Explaining to people that feeling where you're kitted up, you're in your gear and you dive off the boat or jump off the boat and you're all of a sudden submerged. Sound is completely different. The sounds for being underwater and that feeling of being under the water is like nothing you can really explain. It's kind of like flying. It's it's entering a completely different world. And you're always filled with this excitement that you're heading down to see a shipwreck that you've maybe spent months researching. What's that moment like when the, the wreck first comes into yeah. view? <laughs> um, you're so excited. You've, you've found it. Sometimes you can spend days trying to locate a site and not find it. And then you are always reminded that often you're on a wreck site where people probably lost their lives. So there's always a haunting sort of chilling aspect to diving on a shipwreck that's a reminder, but equally sort of fascinating at the same time. How do you guide yourself down to where it is that you want to be? Yeah, so I've spent many dives where, you know, we're certain we've got the GPS location, we know this site, Um, And you get down in the water and visibility just may be really terrible and you swim around looking for ages and never find it and come up and move maybe 50 metres and all of a sudden you're on the site. So a lot of it is, is knowing the environments you're in. Technology is fantastic these days. I've worked on sites in WA with um, colleagues at the WA Museum where we were still using transects. So sighting things and lining them up on land in a few various ways to know we're on the right spot. But GPS today is a wonderful thing. (laughs) I guess it must depend on on the visibility in the water, but I don't know, is it like when you see something in a distance and it's smaller and it gets larger or does it suddenly appear? Yeah, sometimes it suddenly appears. Um, One of my favourite sites to dive in Queensland is the SS Yongala and that is in 30 metres of water, so quite deep. And sometimes, you know, generally the visibility is okay and it takes you the first maybe five to 10 metres descending before all of a sudden, I'd say they loom out of the dark. They suddenly sort of start to appear and your imagination plays games on you until you're sure you've seen the wreck. Do you need to bring lights down with you when it's that depth? Not too bad, actually. 30 metres, particularly on the reef where it's beautiful blue water, is quite good. Unless you want to go right down the bottom and you're looking at details, then everything is in a bit of shadow and you do need lights down there. Shipwrecks often attract marine life. It's why Mm. they're so popular with divers. Is that distracting? (laughs) Yes, it is. Um, I have dived on wrecks where sometimes the littlest animals are the most fascinating that have made their homes in shipwrecks. One that I remember working on um, was quite old and had a few nooks and crannies, very shallow, two metres of water, and there was an octopus that had made its home in one sort of area um, around a feature, and you could tell he was living there because he had these piles of 
shells and crabs sitting outside of his home and every once in a while you just see a little a tentacle come out and look at you so you can get really distracted from your job that you're doing by the marine life. Sea snakes are another wonderful and yeah, occasionally you're lucky enough to see some some bigger animals cruising around. I guess that a lot of the shipwrecks that archaeologists like you are interested in uh, uh, may have gone down 100, 200, 300 years ago. How do you find the wreck sites in the first place? Yeah, there's, I guess there's two ways. Firstly, and probably the most common is that other people will find them. So fishermen or scuba divers or people that are just interested in getting out on a reef and snorkeling will come across things that look not right. They don't look natural. They're straight lines. Um, and they report the shipwrecks to the government. And that's how we know we've got a new site. So you kind of start with the site and you have to work backwards. Like a, like a cold case is maybe the best way to describe it. You then have to sort of narrow down what sites may be in that area and the history. And the other way is to start from the books and to start from the records that we have. So spending time in archives, reading ships' logs and journals, and knowing that a shipwreck may have gone down, say, in 1840 in this particular part of the reef, and you know kind of what that ship is made from, so you can go out and survey and search for the site that way. So two different ways, site first or the books first. And how do you go about identifying a ship that you found wrecked under the waves? This is my favourite part of doing shipwreck research and it certainly can take a long time. Um, I think Disney and Hollywood have done a wonderful way of making us think when we say shipwrecks there's a beautiful wooden galleon sitting on the seafloor with its sails flowing in the in the ocean. Um, that very, very, very rarely ever happens and mostly what we have is this strewn mess kind of like an aircraft wreck across the seafloor or across the reef. So automatically you're left with maybe the strongest parts of the ship that are left or um, objects that, you know, preserve underwater. So sturdier things, you're not left with your organics and your materials um, very often. So you have to use those as clues and piece back together from those clues. So I particularly like looking at ship structures and wooden ships in particular. And the more you know about how a ship was built and why and the techniques involved, you can start to use that knowledge to piece together aspects of a ship and give you clues to the identity. Are you looking for the name of a ship? Have all ships got a name (laughs) somewhere? Um, Normally we would say, like I, I had this in, you know, first year university was that jokingly, you'll never be 100% certain of a shipwreck unless you find the ship's bell with the name on it or that you have the ship's name where it is on that wreck, on the stern or on the bow. They would jokingly then say that you're never going to find that, um, particularly on older wrecks. But um, of course, recently with the team finding endurance um, under the Arctic, where one of the best photos is the endurance name across the stern of the ship, that's, um, yeah, that's like an archaeologist's dream, I guess, finding that. <laughs> what was your reaction to that extraordinary news yeah. that archaeologists had found the Endurance Ernest Shackleton ship? Yeah, I really love that shipwrecks that aren't that old can still have a reaction in the media and in the world. And I think that the more that our maritime heritage that, you know, is lost beneath the waves makes it to the news, the better it is for 
all the rest of us working on shipwrecks as well. So I think that really captures everyone's imagination about shipwrecks and the stories of adventure and adversity and survival and the danger and sometimes the sadness associated with them. It's quite fascinating. Why had that ship been preserved so extraordinarily well? Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing that you can see the, you know, the helm, the wheel on the stern of that preserved. Um, there's a couple of reasons. As a general rule, we can often find organics preserved far better underwater on shipwrecks than they ever would have preserved on land, which not a lot of people know. A couple of the reasons are, like endurance, it is in really deep water. So it's really, really cold. It's dark. There's not a lot of light down there. And often if they're buried, they create an anaerobic environment. So there's no bacteria or things that eat away normal things in shallow water on land. So a few things put together creates the perfect environment for shipwreck preservation. What's the worst thing that can happen for <laughs> shipwreck preservation? Yeah, um, mostly and unfortunately, you know, if you think about the Great Barrier Reef and those sorts of environments, warmer, temperate waters, dynamic swell and waves, those sort of physical impacts on shipwrecks are really the worst things. And we have um, typically in our waters here as well a thing called teredo worm, which is ship's worm, which eats away wood. So that I know was a problem for seafaring and wooden ships early on. And that still has a problem for shipwrecks when they're uncovered from the sand. They can get eaten away. Yeah. And then the last one is probably industry and humans themselves, unfortunately, damaging sites, whether they know it or not. When you and your colleagues have found a site that you're going to go and investigate, Maddie, what gear do you take with you? <laughs> These days, my favourite tool is a camera. Um, we have amazing technology available to us. That means things that I would take, you know, previously a long time to record or draw something, I can now record really quickly with a camera, but we do still take down tape measures and we do take down drawing boards and paper and plain old pencils and we can write underwater. Are you having like an April Fool's <laughs> joke, know, yeah. late April Fool's joke with me? What do you mean you take down paper I and know, pencils? Always, it's such a common thing to me and I forget that Nobody really thinks about that. So it's kind of like, I guess the key is in the paper. It's kind of like baking paper or a see-through sort of plasticky paper, but you can draw on it really well with just, yeah, your plain pencils from your pencil case at school. And why take that? What's the use of that when you've got digital technology? Yeah, I think... A lot of what archaeologists do is interpret what we find. So while it's fantastic to have these cameras that take super detailed photographs, a lot of the reason you're down there is to figure out how that shipwreck is lying on a site or um, interpret certain clues and structures. So it's more for us to create basic mud maps and sketches of the site and then write down and record what we see as we go as well. So it's a much more sort of interpretive way of, of looking at a shipwreck. And you'll find yourself, what, thinking differently when you're actually having to, to draw it than if you were just looking at a photo back in the office. Yeah, I think so. There's two two sides to that. I like having, like knowing that if you get blown off that site or it's so remote that you won't get back there for five years, that you have those wonderful photographic records. But it does really switch your brain, I guess, from the wonder and the process of just taking photos to actually stopping in the moment and looking at this site and figuring out reasons why 
you know, a cannon might be here and an anchor's here or why is there a chain dragged all this way across the reef and that sort of starts to be the story that you want to tell. Do you let yourself touch things and pick them up? (laughs) Yeah, I think um, one of my favourite things is, you know, they always say that um, seeing the real thing and touching the real thing is far better than any, I guess, copy or reconstruction that you can have. And we certainly, you know, sometimes you have to hold on to an anchor or a cannon when you're down there on a rough site. But as soon as we pick up the smaller stuff, so bottles or anything that um, sits on the surface, you sort of ultimately change that wreck site. And unless you've recorded exactly where that's come from within the wreck, you lose that information. As you've mentioned, you you work in Townsville and Mm -hmm. so the Great Barrier Reef is just there on your doorstep. How many shipwrecks are there on the Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, I love telling people how many shipwrecks are actually on our coastline. Um, There's over 900 ship and aircraft wrecks along the Great Barrier Reef itself. So they range from more modern sites to anything over 75 years old is protected and is a historic wreck, which now includes aircraft. 900. How many of those have been identified? Or That's an estimation of 900 that we suspect are wrecked on the reef. Of those, we have located roughly 114, 115 of them. And even within those 115, we probably know the actual identity of just a handful of those. So you've maybe got, you've 15 got a lot of work 20. to do. You shouldn't be in here so talking to me, to Maddie. Do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally hundreds of shipwrecks waiting for you. Yeah. It's exciting. <laughs> so one of those, the most famous, is the Pandora. Mm-hmm. Why is that such an important ship? Yeah, so HMS Pandora is the oldest shipwreck that we've found on the Great Barrier Reef. And it has a fascinating story of mutiny and, I guess, adventure. It's it's a global story that's quite famous around the world. But Pandora is really the sequel to um, Mutiny on the Bounty, which is a story of crew that were sailing around the Pacific and collecting bread plants um, to take back home. And when they were told they had to leave and go back, they didn't want to leave. They didn't married. want to leave Tahiti. They didn't want to leave Tahiti. You can blame them. <laughs> they didn't want to leave paradise. <laughs> they didn't want to go back to really I'm cold I'm not going England. back to Manchester <laughs> with this breadfruit. I'm staying here. <laughs> Much better. And they'd actually, like, they'd married into local groups there. They'd really become a part of life in these places. So you can understand that they didn't want to leave although they were employed by the Navy at the time. Um, So they mutinied and they took the bounty and sent the captain and loyal officers in a few boats um, away to get help. And the reaction from that was that the, um, the British Navy was so, so angry. It was, you know, there was never a mutiny. It was the worst thing you could have in the Navy that they sent the full force of the Navy to chase them down. And that happened to be HMS Pandora, which was quite well known. So, you know, we'll send our best ship, we'll hunt them down and we'll bring them back. What would it have looked like <laughs> at that point? This is in the 1790s. How would it have looked on the ocean? Yeah, really good question. So I guess... Um, the closest I can give people that they'll recognise really easily is just to think about Pirates of the Caribbean. And I'm the so British. happy with that I answer. Know, I know. <laughs> I thought you were going to like dissuade me and say it's not like the Disney <laughs> version, but it is. It's like Pirates it is, of the Caribbean. Yeah, if you think about the, um, the, I guess, the Navy ships that were sent to chase the pirates, that's 
kind of the right timeline. It's essentially the right style of ship, a sailing wooden, you know, ship loaded with cannon um, sent to chase them. That's exactly what Pandora was. So it came out to Queensland in in the hunt for these mutineers. Mm -hmm. What happened? They spent many months travelling around South Pacific Islands and they actually managed to find 14 of the mutineers in Tahiti um, and chase them down. They missed Fletcher Christian, who was the leader of the mutiny, I guess, and a couple of his close mutineers who had ended up um, on Pitcairn Island, so just out of range. And after spending three months there, they kind of gave up. They'd got 14 mutineers and decided it was time to to head back home. And yeah, they couldn't find Bounty. Bounty had actually been burnt by Fletcher Christian on Pitcairn Island. So um, they wrote that off and just knowing that they had the mutineers, they could head home. So the Pandora and its crew and and these prisoners were on their way home. They were on their way home. What happened? They decided they'd come around um, South America and come that way through the South Pacific. And to get home, they decided to take the route through the Torres Strait, which was known as a fast route across, but also particularly treacherous and unmapped um, as a way to get between Northern Australia and Indonesia. And so that was the plan. (laughs) Where and how did the Pandora meet its end? Yeah, I think it's really great to remind people that the Great Barrier Reef we see now as this beautiful tropical, wonderful ecosystem with fantastic corals. It's world famous for snorkeling in turquoise waters. But for seafarers today, but certainly back then, it is exactly that. It's a barrier that you almost can't cross safely, and particularly in those northern bits. So put yourself in the shoes of those sailors trying to navigate a sailing ship. So without any other sort of power through you know, full reef barrier walls, you know, that's really tricky. And they get around that by sending smaller boats in to have a look and see if there's a safe passage. That's exactly what Pandora did. And Captain Edwards was moving around, manoeuvring to pick up one of those boats that had seen what they thought was a safe passage. Um, And during that manoeuvres, the swell and the current just pushed Pandora onto an uncharted small reef. And how quickly did it it sink? Yeah, I think... um, the reason why we have the wreck Pandora all relates back to the the wrecking. So it first hit this reef and most of the wrecks that land on reef tops on the Great Barrier Reef and stay there, they get so hammered over time by the environment, there's not a lot left. We were lucky that they managed to offload some pieces, some heavy bits like some cannon, get the pumps going and at high tide Pandora could float off that reef behind it to some safer water. Unfortunately, after about 12 hours, their main pump failed um, and they couldn't fix the hole in the bottom of Pandora. So it sank behind a reef in 30 metres of water onto a sandy seafloor quite quickly. Once the pumps failed, it, it, it was a matter of minutes, I believe, when it went down. And did the, the sailors and crew and, and prisoners on board the Pandora escape? Yeah, We have the journal from the captain and the surgeon and some of the crew and even some of the mutineers. So we have this kind of recorded, which is fascinating to know. Um, Unfortunately, about 30 or so of the crew died during the wrecking, whether that was when it first hit while they were trying to save it or in those final moments when it did sink. 
the mutineers actually, and this is a really fascinating side story, were imprisoned in a makeshift prison on the stern of Pandora, which they colloquially called Pandora's Box. It was a, I think it was about one and a half metres tall, a couple of metres long, um, and the mutineers were chained in there by their feet. So lying in two rows, their feet were all chained together they couldn't really stand up. Um, and one of the mutineers actually records it as being, you know, absolutely filthy with rats and maggots. You know, it, it was hell being in this box, but I guess that was the point, right, that they'd mutinied and they were being punished for it. What happened to those men when the boat went down? Yeah, they kept them locked in there um, almost right until the last moment and an order was given to unlock them. But it was actually one particular crewman, William Malter, that stopped and actually unlocked or broke the, the lock on Pandora's box and let them out. But unfortunately, one mutineer couldn't be let out from his shackles, so he did go down with the ship. The rest of them managed to get out. When was the, the wreck of the Pandora found? <laughs> um, I believe it was found in about 1977 by a range of people who had been looking for it for a long time. So people who love this story and this history were looking for it, did a dive on it, reported it, and maritime archaeologists went out there in 1979 and confirmed that it was Pandora. How different was diving and marine archaeology, if that's even the right term to use back then? What, what does it look like? You know, if you put yourself in those shoes, you think about 1970s or the 1980s and there's classic photos of the divers in, like, Speedos <laughs> um, in 30 metres of water, like, lifting cannon or excavating, um, which obviously we can't do that these days. We don't do that these days. So OHNS was a bit different in, in the early 80s. Who gave sponsorship to those guys? <laughs> so um, I think my colleagues on the land like to laugh at maritime archaeologists and, you know, we're kind of like the 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 crazy ones, I guess, of the archaeology world. And there's no better example of that than um, the 1986 expedition was funded by Forex Gold. <laughs> um, and I believe an entire crate of Forex Gold was loaded onto the ship for um, a couple of weeks of excavating, along with lots of merchandise. So there's great photos of the archaeologists having really serious discussions at a table and one of them is in a bright yellow Forex Gold T-shirt and Forex Gold Speedos. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then there's a fantastic, obviously staged photo um, underwater where they're all sitting in deck chairs and umbrellas and bikinis and Speedos that are all Forex Gold. So it's just such a great, like that's a great quintessential Queensland maritime archaeology <laughs> story. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Maddie, you were describing the finding of the wreck of the Pandora and those first archaeologists found lots of shells. What did yeah. they assume about, about the shells? This is one of those great archaeology stories where 
you know, if we hadn't been really careful in thinking about this as we excavated, you know, you're on the Great Barrier Reef. You're going to find shells and bits and pieces that aren't related to the wreck. And that's certainly what they thought when they initially uncovered a couple of things like that. It was just part of the local environment. As they kept excavating um, further, they found that some of these shells were worked. So they have holes drilled into them or they're carved in some way and they suddenly realised that what they were looking at was actually part of Pandora material culture, part of the shipwreck. And they were packed away in, in boxes and crates or in the same area where other things were packed away. So all of a sudden you start to realise that, you know, these crew and these people were travelling in something that was very foreign to them, you know, in the South Pacific. And they were stopping and trading for items with local communities as they travelled through. So they were taking these objects back home, back to Europe to to put on display or probably to sell. But what it means is that we have this fascinating record from Pandora of um, South Pacific Islanders sort of shells and fishing hooks and war clubs and things like that that we might not have. They're some of the oldest in the world that have preserved and they're from a shipwreck. (laughs) There are those objects on on board the shipwreck and then there's the ship itself. And as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. the the technique of shipbuilding and the wood that a ship is made out is part of what is is of interest to you, Maddie. Shipbuilding is such an ancient skill. Did shipbuilders always use plans when they were creating these enormous ships that were travelling out across the known world? We've been building ships or we've been crafting seafaring vessels for millennia and certainly the traditional wooden shipbuilding of Europe, there's a long tradition of shipbuilding that wasn't ever written down. It was handed down from generation to generation and that was something that you know, shipbuilders learnt very young and they carried on throughout. So we may not have these records of how and what exactly went into a ship. You may have a general sense of it. And so that information is preserved in these shipwrecks when we can find it. So it may seem like the most boring side of a shipwreck. It's not treasure. It's not objects from people. It's the actual ship itself. But we can learn so much about how we built and how we... um improved and advanced our shipbuilding knowledge over time. Explain that to me, Maddie. How would that be passed down? I mean, we're not talking just canoes. We're talking big yeah. sailing ships. Yes. Yeah, I guess it's um, it's hard to think about now, but maybe it often took years to build a ship and they would work on it. They would lay foundations and everyone sort of had a job. So there were um, the shipwrights and, and the shipbuilders who ran the whole thing and they were quite prestigious. But don't forget that this, you know, I'm talking about 500 to 800 years ago um, and they may not have known how to read or write, but what they did know was wood. What they did know was how to bend timber. They knew, I guess, the principles of how to build a floating ship and how to build a ship in a way that it sailed properly. And that knowledge is something that we have learnt and we had learnt over hundreds of years of shipbuilding. So perhaps trial and error over a long time, but also generational knowledge in terms of, you know, they maybe had kids that started helping around the shipyards, you know, and they grew up knowing it. So it was kind of like this intrinsic knowledge that was handed down to them. It's incredible. And then so when you find the wreck of the ship, it's like you've found the the manifestation of those plans that those people just, just held in their heads. Yeah. What can the wood that a ship is made out of tell you? Yeah, I think people forget that we can learn so much from 
tiny clues. And sometimes archaeology is that fascinating story of really tiny details and samples and analysis that tells us these wonderful big stories about our heritage. And wood is one of those brilliant examples of that as well. So what do you learn from the wood of a ship? (laughs) Can you work out where it comes from? Yeah, yes. So we can take samples of the timber from certain parts of the ship and we know that ships, you know, the the keel, which is, I guess, the backbone of a ship when people think about it, and the frames, which are like the ribs, were always built of very strong, heavy timbers, so oaks and things like that, that gave your ship its strength. So when we take a sample of that, we send it off to a dendrochronologist. They are fascinating people that spend their lives literally analysing wood and trees and tree rings and understanding where wood has come from around the world. And able to date, I guess, the, yeah. the wood. Yeah, so um, dendrochronologists have these libraries, which are kind of like databases um, called wood libraries, where you can take a, a sample or a slice of a piece of timber and they use the tree rings and the form of it to identify it, but then to age it. And sometimes they can place a piece of wood in the exact forest it came from and give you an age of it, which is just fascinating. You're from WA, which is the site of another very famous Australian shipwreck, the Batavia. What's known about the wood from from that ship? Yeah, so recent research from um, some of my colleagues on this showed that the wood from Batavia, so pieces that it was built of, and if anybody's been there, um, go to the Shipwreck Museum in Fremantle, you can actually see the wreck itself reconstructed in the gallery. So they sampled some of those timbers that you can see yourself there and actually found that they were two or three hundred year old trees that were harvested from now extinct forests in Europe. But at the time they were harvested, you know, 1625 and the ship was built not soon after that. So harvested there um, and used green, which is obviously quite smart, so they could bend and and flex the timbers into the shapes that they wanted. But, yeah, just absolutely fascinating that these timbers that we have from Batavia that are in a museum in Western Australia are actually now from extinct forests in Europe, yeah. What's the connection between those woods and the great Dutch painter Rembrandt? (laughs) Yeah, this is um, my favourite story from that and I'm certainly stealing all of this information from my colleague Wendy van Dievenvoorder who um, has done this research. But one of the fascinating things I think they found out is that some of the Baltic timbers, um, which were quite renowned for their smooth appearance and fantastic form, in Batavia match wood from the frames from some of Rembrandt's paintings. So um, it's likely he was sourcing them from the same spot or, um, you know, you can, I guess, put your imaginative hat on a little bit and think about him back at that time painting in the same city in Amsterdam, maybe um, sourcing his timbers from offcuts from the Dutch East India um, shipbuilding company across the road or down the street. <laughs> When you were a little girl in in Western Australia, Maddie, were you told stories of the Batavia? Is that something every child in WA is is taught about? I'm really biased, obviously, but I think it's fantastic that maritime archaeology and shipwrecks, and particularly Batavia, is actually in the school curriculum. And we learnt about that story. What is the story? (laughs) I guess it's a horrible story. I mean, maybe that's what um, captures your imagination first. It's a tale, of course, of shipwrecking, once again of mutiny, of a newly built 
fantastic flagship for the VOC, the the Dutch East India Company that was travelling from Europe around to Indonesia or or Batavia as it was known, um, which was under Dutch um, colonial rule at the time with precious cargo, chests of silver. And they came around Cape of South Africa and would hit this breeze called the Roaring Forties, which would push them up and across um, to Western Australia and up further. And unfortunately, Batavia was one of those vessels that just went a little bit too far um, and hit reef on the Abrolhos Islands. And what happened after it, it ran into that reef? Yeah, I think there's there's many, many novels written about Batavia. So if you're interested in this, um, I highly recommend um, Mike Dash's Batavia's Graveyard as a story. But it's a crazy story of the captain leaving the survivors to go and get help from Indonesia. And um, he left behind the crew, the Navy officers, and also the regular people. And what followed was that a leader who had been planning to mutiny um, on the voyage decided to mutiny anyway um, and systematically sort of separate people and kill them off to save supplies, but also because he could. Um, So it's a crazy story of murder and mayhem on deserted islands um, off the West Australian coastline. That was Cornelius, yes, is that right? Yes, Cornelius, Cornelius. Who had his own kind of philosophy of, <laughs> of libertarian hedonism that yes. he was wanting to enact on the Yeah, on the he wild was very waters. against religion. He saw religion as um, stopping people from enjoying the pleasure of life. And his his mind of that, I guess, at the time was to steal all the silver he could and drink everything he wanted on the island there and, you know, pick whichever women he wanted. It's such an extraordinary thought to think that out there in, in 1629, <laughs> on, on these little coral islands, away from anything and everyone they knew, this this guy was acting as this, this tyrant. Was he stopped? I've read um, some of the accounts that he was walking around in, you know, the the velvets and had silver, you know, around him on these deserted islands. So it really is something like quite crazy. He was stopped. He actually sent away the Navy officers under the guise of um, finding fresh water for people and then sabotaged their boats, tried to overtake them in the end when they actually found fresh water and he was caught by them. And really that coincided at the right time that the commander Pelsart came back from Indonesia with help with a ship. He was caught there. Um, They had a trial there on the islands um, and he had his hands cut off and he was hung at the gallows on an island called Seal Island. Um, Didn't do things by half, did they, back in the 1600s on ships? Cut off his hands, cut off and then hung. And then hung, yeah, and left there as a warning. So as a, you know, they were left hanging at these gallows um, for anybody who passed by to know, yeah. And what about the the wreck itself and all that precious cargo that it carried? Was any of that rescued? I think that um, they'd obviously taken things off during the wrecking and, and Cornelitz had objects on the island, so they packed all of those up and took them. Um, where Batavia actually wrecked, you know, it wrecked really early in the morning on the edge of a reef, so on Morning Reef, and it's crazy dynamic. Um, I think, you know, Batavia broke up quite quickly and 40 people or so drowned while they were clinging to that the next day or in the wrecking itself as well. So there wasn't a lot they could salvage um, from the wreck itself. You've spent time out there yes. diving and, and as a as a marine archaeologist, what do you see there now? Yeah, so 
wonderfully, um, Batavia was almost completely excavated in the 1970s. So that means that not just the objects inside the wreck were lifted, the entire hull was lifted and that's why you can see that in the museum. Was so, there an equivalent WA brewery that sponsored <laughs> <laughs> that important part of archaeology? That, they should have thought about that, didn't they? Yeah, no. Look <laughs> at all those lost photo opportunities. Oh, um, no. And um, so what's left now actually on the, the real Batavia shipwreck site is this wonderful sandy hollow where the hull actually did sit is now filled with bright white limestone sand. So you can actually see it from Google Earth. If you know just where to look along the reef, you see this um, oblong white shape and that's Batavia. And they left lots of cannon and anchors um, as they had formed on the site. Um, I guess the site really emotive and significant itself. And what about the islands where those rescuers and, yeah. and that crazy Tyron and his henchmen were were clinging to life? What yeah. are they like to visit now? yeah. Uh, the Abrolis is famous for um, crayfishing industry and certainly when I started working on um, Beacon Island, which is the island closest to the wreck site that they called Batavia's Graveyard, it was filled with fishermen's huts and, and things that had grown up over the 1950s and were still kind of in use. And actually really recently it's gone back to a National Heritage listing and a park and they've removed all of those aspects. So Beacon Island itself has gone back to exactly what it would have looked like when the survivors from Batavia um, managed to scramble their way across a kilometre of reef and shallow water and make it to dry land. But when you get to this island, it's not exactly, you know, it's not exactly a place I could guess you could say you were saved if you were shipwrecked there. These islands are made up of crushed coral and rocks, so there's barely any sand they're very bizarre. They have shrubby, hardy kind of bushes grow on them. They are kind of desert islands that uh, you find yourself on. So uh, you could certainly say that those survivors would have been in hell. There's no shade, very little shade, no fresh water. And the crazy thing is, is that as soon as you step into the water five metres off that island, it's beautiful blue, tropical water, beautiful, colourful fish. It's paradise underwater and hell above water. Does it feel quite eerie? Yeah, a lot of people say that because um, we used to stay out there, so we would camp on those islands and we'd work from the island and certainly a lot of my colleagues and friends that worked there get eerie feelings when you're camping there overnight and um, have recorded having like crazy dreams um, about the, the survivors or about, you know, Cornelitz or something like that, which is probably fueled by late night tales around the dinner table and certainly talking about the stories before you go to sleep, but it is an eerie place to be. Have you uncovered any archaeological finds in your time there? Yeah. So the project that I was working on is part of an ARC, so an Australian Research Council project called Shipwrecks of the Roaring Forties. Um, you know, certainly Batavia was excavated in the 70s, so there's not a huge amount of work to do on the shipwreck itself, but the missing part of the story was those survivors and how they lived on that island for three to four months. And we knew from the journals and the recorded writings that they buried people on those islands or, you know, 125 children, women and men were murdered on Beacon Island or in the Abrellis. So you assume that there would be some burials somewhere. And we were looking for burial areas and clues to 
the human remains, but also hopefully trying to find the survivors' camp, which had never been located. We did a couple of seasons and I think in total approximately um, 10 to 12 extra human remains were located and they were really fascinating. Uh, We worked with forensic anthropologists, so people whose job is to know bones. I couldn't tell you the difference between a leg bone and an arm bone, um, but I can dig and I can find the sites for you. And it was a real mix. I think what we found was a mix of people who may have died early on um, in the wrecking or of illness that were buried, I guess you'd say appropriately. And then perhaps what we started to see was burials that had been hastily done, more shallow. So we did find um, remains. I don't think we ever really found concrete evidence of survivors camps, but that's likely because they took what they could when they left in the rescue ship. Were identities able to be made out of those remains? Do you know where people were from, who they were? Yeah. The great thing about working with specialists in other fields, and and this project was one of those examples that we had forensic anthropologists from Western Australia, but also from the Netherlands. So Dutch specialists came out to work on this site, which is their heritage too. And um, they managed to take samples from the teeth of these remains and do isotope analyses on them. So they could know roughly where these people had lived for most of their life up until about five or so years or the preceding years before they died. And you know, we have logs of these people and their names are all Dutch and, and you know, you assume they're all Dutch descendants. And the crazy thing is that a lot of these people actually weren't from the Netherlands. They were from elsewhere in Europe or Scotland or Spain. And it really shows, I guess, the, the breadth and the global empire that was the Dutch East India Company at the time. The crew wasn't as Dutch as you think. You mentioned earlier, Maddie, that you spend time diving on the SS Yongala, which is off the coast of of North Queensland. Mm -hmm. What's the story of that ship? Yeah, I love this story. It's very, very different to most of my research. I do like the wooden ships. Yongala is a tale, I think, that the simplest way is it's Australia's Titanic. It was the same era. So 1911, it sank. A lot of people died on it, but it's a a giant steamship. So 100 metre long, very well known, very renowned steamship that travelled along our coastline. Was it known at the time what had happened to it? Yeah. So there's a, I guess, a very typical North Queensland story associated with Yongala. It, um, It left Mackay in late March with, you know, a full crew, um, cargo and passengers on board that were all heading north. And it was next due in Townsville. Um, and a cyclone had unexpectedly hit the coastline during this time. Um, and that wasn't uncommon. And, you know, ships at the time that faced that, if they couldn't turn back, they often tried to take cover somewhere. But yeah, Yongala just never turned up to Townsville. It never appeared when it was three or four days late and it was good enough to go out. Um, They sent people searching for it and never found a clue of it except for um, some like flotsam detritus from the ship that began to wash up, um, some letters and morbidly the racehorse that Yongala was carrying from Mackay turned up dead on the beach without its head. So they were the only clues. What that means is that um, the wild theories that surrounded what actually happened to Yongala um, 
where, where full-on people thought it had been taken capture from somewhere. People thought it was high, you know, it was safe somewhere along the coastline and just doing repairs. Um, and it just, yeah, never appeared again. When was the truth <laughs> found out? Yeah, so... During or just after World War II, um, the Navy was doing surveys and identified a strange feature off air um, in between the Great Barrier Reef and the mainland. And it wasn't until the 1950s when some divers decided to investigate that, that they yeah went for a dive and found a 100 metre long ship sitting in 30 metres of water, almost sitting perfectly upright, a little bit tilted to one side. And it was Yongala. It had its name on the bow, of course. <laughs> Again, <laughs> Again. Unlike, unlike that lecture you were <laughs> yeah. warned about. And what's it like to dive at, at yeah. now? It is um, in the top, one of the top 10 wreck dive sites in the world. It sits in, I guess you'd call it like a, a sandy desert. If you took all the water away from around it, between the reef and the mainland, there's nothing but sand. And all of a sudden you put a 100 metre long 15 metre high feature and you create this wonderful reef and oasis for marine life. And that is why people dive it these days. They dive it to see giant turtles and rays and sea snakes and sharks all around it. It's absolutely fascinating to dive Yongala. And what kind of artefacts have been reclaimed from that wreck? Yeah, I guess this is where you kind of get into that area of what can you learn from a modern um, shipwreck. We have the plans of Yongala. We know where, how it was built. We know a lot about it, but I guess what we don't know is more personal and what those people went through in those last moments or on their last voyage um, is recorded in some ways in the objects and the artifacts that can be found on Yongala. So some things that um, we have in the Queensland Museum, we have a wonderful Yongala collection, include portholes and lights from the deck. I've got bottles and plates and really, you know, everyday things that people used. And it's kind of fascinating to recognise things from a shipwreck that's over 100 years old. Uh, shipwrecks even much older than the Yongala have had their artefacts, as you were explaining earlier, preserved through this incredibly specific environment of the salt water and the sand and the darkness. What happens when you bring those objects to the surface? Yeah. <laughs> um, Luckily, we get to work with conservators. I think I failed chemistry in high school, so I'm not very good with the specifics of it, but it was drilled into me. You know, we always take a conservator with us in fieldwork, um, but the general rule of thumb is if it was wet, leave it wet. So if you happen to be out in the field and, and you lift something, so say um, a plate from Yongala, and you've recorded where it's come from, you're lifting it up, it has to be kept wet until it can be conserved in a lab. And that's to do with being underwater for so long, even if it is 50 or 70 years up to a thousand years, that environment and the salt water really affects objects. And if you dry them out without conserving them properly, they can just shrivel and crack and and fall apart. Does that count for the wood itself of the yes. ship? Yes. Wood is even trickier. Organics are really hard to preserve if they've been underwater. And the basic theory is, is that while it's underwater, the, the cells inside the wood have broken down, but it is supported by the water. As soon as you lift that up and it dries out because all the cells have broken down, it shrinks and cracks. And I have seen fantastic planks of wood where I have photos that they were raised, you know, in a perfect condition, almost like it went underwater yesterday. And 
and not conserved properly or, or lifted by people who weren't archaeologists and left to dry and you can't even recognise that from the picture that it was. Of, of all the time you've spent in archives and and ship's logs and learning about these shipwrecks, is there one that's in your imagination, Maddie, mm. that you'd just love to be able to dive to, maybe discover? I always have a bucket list of international wrecks that I'd love to get to. I think the most unrealistic is Titanic. That's probably not going to happen. But, you know, you always think about if you were to leave in 20 years' time, what would be your legacy and and what could you have done? And I think when I think back to, you know, we were talking about 900 ship and aircraft wrecks on the Great Barrier Reef, we probably have a wreck out there that is just as fascinating as Pandora but maybe a bit more local. So maybe not an international site, but an Australian shipwreck or a New Zealand shipwreck or something like that, that, you know, is a bit more of the small fry of the shipwreck world, um, but has fascinating stories and tales to tell about the people who are on board. And it would be my dream to to find or identify one of those wrecks um, and study that and I guess, show the world or show Australia that story that is kind of hidden from history. We we look over our little Australian wrecks a bit. Well, good luck. Happy diving. <laughs> and you. come and tell us about it when you discover Absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> You're first on the list. <laughs> Thank you so much, Maddie, for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you. That was fantastic. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, Miyuki Okiranta here from Earshot. And in the latest episode in our Remember Me series, producer Zoe Ferguson interrogates her memories of her late father, Greg. I sit there tuning into memories of him. (laughs) What are my memories of Dad? Am I actually remembering something real or just creating a memory from an old photo? Seeing a loved one lose the battle against the bottle is hard and it can be particularly tough for their children. Like, why are you choosing booze instead of your family? Ah, well, good question. I'm worried about you. Is it genetic? We might store things that haunt us. The bits we inherit from our parents. The parts that we're not quite sure belong there. That's Ghost in the Machine. Just look for us on the ABC Listen app.